flicker, a whisper, a spell, a death, a rebirth, a faint light in the warmth of a dark summer's night. The moth is an insect full of rich symbolism. Welcome to Vignettes, the Emerging Writers Festival podcast. My name is Ruby and I'm the Artistic Director at EWF. I'm coming to you from the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. For this episode of Vignettes, we invited Yumiko Marama, Vince Rustin and Lou Garcia Dolnik to respond to the prompt moth and to share with us the dreams they pin to the wings of these fluttering friends. First up, here's Yumiko. Hey, my name's Yumiko Murama. I'm coming from the lands of the Bunurung people of the Kulin Nation here in Nam, Melbourne. I'm a writer, therapist and food truck owner. During the week, I provide training and supervision to the youth mental health sector and hold all for the amazing work that people continue to do on the front line. I've been working from home since March this year, 2020. I'm currently sitting on my couch, the couch I watch TV from, where I eat dinner from, where I write from on the weekends and work from during the week. For work, I sometimes perch an old-school milk crate on the couch and balance my laptop on top of it so that it meets my eyeline, and I awkwardly sit sideways, all to be more respectable for Zoom meetings. When I'm creatively writing, I'm usually lying on the couch, my head propped up on the armrest. Today I'm sitting the way the couch is intended. Living in an apartment, there's always noise in the background. A helicopter, neighbours' laughter, the sound of the tram on our street. Next to me is a fern that flourishes despite my neglect of it. There's warm, bright light coming in from the big windows that take up the whole wall of our lounge room. We can see our neighbours' rooftops and on some days, neighbourhood cats can be seen trawling atop the rooftops and circling around the chimneys. I like observing them, observing the world. I finished this story on the 100th day of stage four lockdown here in Melbourne. Thanks for listening. I imagine moths are eating my brain. Just as moths are drawn to the cupboard of your clothes, finding the items you haven't touched for months and nestle themselves into the fabrics, slowly eating your old forgotten things, I imagine them doing the same to my grey matter. Ever since lockdown in Melbourne, where my brain has been working in overdrive as well as paralysed and lacking, I don't know how to explain to you the way that it can be both things. Now I miss being immersed in novels, the way I could spend the whole afternoon in one. I miss the clarity and efficiency of my previous self. Thinking now feels like a currency, perhaps even an identity that I once had. It's become a newfound honesty and unity shared with work colleagues, how we're all kaput, done with inefficient work environments, griefs that are hard to place, and this new resounding burnout. And I know of the troubling sleep patterns of my local barista, talk far more to my neighbours, know of who is worried for their parents' health, who has just lost their job. It's hard to smile at people in a mask, but you learn to crinkle your eyes, especially towards children, in the hope that it can send a reassuring message that everything's okay. While the most vulnerable in Melbourne is surely the most affected by it, this fear affects us all. And because it does, we openly share about it. We're all in this together, unless you live in a public housing tower, of course. My sister is afraid of moths. I have a memory of her from when we were both teens. Remember her running up the landing to our front door, terrified, trying to avoid the front porch light nearby. 
The moth didn't even register us, too busy banging itself again and again towards the light. Of course, I was laughing in one of those typical, unkind yet forgivable sibling moments. I threatened to cut the moth in my hands and bring it into the house with us. She returned my comments with a death stare at first, but later laughed once we'd made it safely inside. I'd laughed at the time because I didn't really understand the fear. It felt so disproportionate and looming, and it made me uncomfortable too, I guess, to see her distress, so it relieved me to be able to laugh it off. I tried to understand, and she tried to explain it, something about the flittering of wings, the film left behind by them. I could imagine it was the sense of one getting caught in her hair, or touching her neck, perhaps. Perhaps that could feel like some kind of violation. We forget about life pre-COVID, but it did exist, and the fear it existed too. It was just used more sparingly. The backseat kind that meant everything to those experiencing it, but which most of us could ignore. Like domestic violence, chronic illness, mental health, black deaths in custody, over-policing of certain communities. A headline we could read and comment on and then forget. I used to have dreams cloaked in fears. Dreams of being chased, the faces always out of view, but in a way that I assumed to be the faces of men. Not that it's an uncommon fear, of course. As a woman, you just learn to accommodate it. Now instead, during lockdown, I dream of work, of projects and tasks that I need to do, as if that is a fear in itself, to have lost all meaning where there is nothing left but work. Perhaps there is a reason why moths move towards the light. Even after the scariest of nightmares, I've always felt a relief in waking to find my girlfriend purring in the bed next to me. And I've known that if I was to step out of the sinking softness of the covers, walk through the bedroom to the kitchen, the cold lino below my feet, and unravel our blinds that look into our apartment car park, I'd be witness to the glaring yellow man-made light that remains on, even at 3am. I've known that it could force away the lingering effects of sleep, and that knowledge, even the availability of light, has always helped me to feel safe enough to close my eyes once again. Perhaps in the light you don't need to feel the precariousness of your position in the darkness. A small relief. I'm sure we all deserve to feel safe, to see our own fears, to have a language for them and to share them with our communities. Perhaps we can appreciate how our own fears can shift, like flight, like moving patterns on the back of wings. I just wonder what happens when that uniting fear goes away. We go back to our backseat fears that have nowhere else to go or be seen. Nowhere left for our fears to be acknowledged by the rest of us. Thank you, Yumiko. Next up, we have Vince. Hi, I'm Vince Rustin, a writer and editor living on Wurundjeri land and currently visiting Lutruwidu land. At home, I live with my witchy feline daughter, Persephone, and here with my mother and her gorgeous golden retriever, Lulu. I work across different forms of creative writing, but poetry is closest to my heart and poetic elements tend to bleed through to my fiction. I interpreted the theme of moth in the vein of attraction and lust, often to things or people we know might end up hurting us. One of my favourite poems is The Lesson of the Moth by Don Marquis, which informed a lot of the interpretation of this theme. The piece I'm going to read for EWF's vignettes is titled Joy and the Flesh of Fruit. It's a poetic prose piece, loosely inspired by a morning with a former girlfriend. In my defence, I had never eaten an avocado before. Joy and the flesh of fruit. Her bed. The white sheets. The creases and folds where the shadows snap in where the morning light turns white to gold. 
Here, a spot of blood bleached to brown. Here, an eyelash, a glimpse of her mascara. Here, a skin cell, the dampness of her sweat. I can feel these remnants of her body all around me, vibrating at a frequency that makes me weak. I want to be small enough to smother myself in them. Small enough to curl into the dent the absence her wedding ring leaves in her finger when she takes it off to take me to bed. Abigail. The lilt soft and lightness of it on my tongue. Abigail. To bring joy. The name has always brought to my mind images of angels frocked in white. People think angels are beautiful beings with feathered wings who come down to the chosen few singing hymns, but they are not. When Gabriel came to Mary, he asked her not to scream. If humans had wings, they would be made of flesh. I want to sing her name over and over. She wraps me in her robe and I feel blessed to be surrounded by her scent. She makes rich coffee, slices sourdough for breakfast, hands me two avocados and a gleaming sharp knife. I hold the leathery pear like an orange, dig the blade in and start to flay. Nineteen years old, but I'd never learned how to not mutilate the thing. She watches me try to conceal my inexperience. I can feel her gaze on me, amused spark in her eye and the corner of her mouth. I flush from the collarbones up, roses bleeding in my cheeks. The way she watches me makes me want to cover myself in fig leaves. You know... The Aztecs considered avocados an aphrodisiac, she says, lips brushing the shell of my ear. She takes the knife and fruit from me, shows me how to perform this surgery, cutting precisely round the globe of it, twist and lay flat, open. She lodges the blade into the pitted core and gouges it out. It's so violently delicious the way she handles the knife, her hands so merciless. She brings joy, but she knows how to rip the guts out of things without flinching. She places the second avocado in my left hand, slinks her arms around my waist. Be gentle, my heart beating wild as ivy. Still my breath to slow my brain. Her phone buzzes, pulsing on the countertop. I see his name across the screen, remove myself from the room. Thinks I'm tactful, but in truth I'm afraid to hear how they talk to each other, the changes in her tone when she lies. Does he know it as well as I? I run the bathroom taps until all I hear is the vibrato of her voice and the sour, hopeless ache in my chest. The voice that asks how long till she rips the guts out of me. I'd tear them out myself if she asked. Thanks, Vince. And last but not least, here is Lou. Hi, my name is Lou, and I'm a poet working on unceded Gadigal land. I'm an emerging arts worker and have been very lucky to keep my job through the pandemic, having recently made the transition from full-time to part-time work, which has been a bit of a god save. I haven't been able to write very much this year, though I'm trying to coax myself back into some kind of routine stealing a few hours or minutes here and there to meditate in the usual terrain. My workspace is an island bench in the middle of my kitchen. This is the only workable space in my home, with most other tables covered in clothes, paper, food, things that should probably really be thrown away. 
I'm not much of a homekeeper, but I have convinced a troop of rainbow lorikeets to visit me occasionally for bread. They come to the balcony in the afternoon, which is to my left, and discloses a deceptively idyllic landscape picture frame of the suburb, foliage nearly swallowing the staid and geometric outlines of factory buildings, houses, and a train line running horizontal to my balcony's railing. For vignettes by EWF, I'll be reading two poems that contemplate what it might mean to say goodbye to someone before saying goodbye. Without enumerating the many reasons for which one might be drawn out of the intimacy of a partnership, to exist contemporaneously in the departure from a communion as within it, I was enchanted with the morning of a kind of being there, a push and pull of loss and longing. A couple weeks after writing these poems, I fortuitously came across a quote by Toni Morrison which reads, It is sheer good fortune to miss somebody long before they leave you. Then, we could think of this grieving as a kind of gift, the long inexorable shadow of existing in anyone's light. The first poem I'll read for you is The Girl As. The Girl As copper thing, cut with Stanley knife, instrument of surgical precision. The waging of quiet wars, her geode knees good for anything but genuflecting, running faster than you've ever seen anyone run and never leaving enough space for Jesus on the dance floor of the way she fucks you up but never fucks you. Her syntaxes which redress the sharp evening in the grammar of smoke, which is not to say you've ever watched her sleep or undress, but that you know her underthings are too loose from wear and that she is in need of new ones. The upward cicatrice ruining her elbow, which is not to say that you've run your finger over the rivulet of her red landscapes, but that you know her mother cried when God said open to the many years of her body. So she becomes in the image of a dream of calling you by your true name. There is, of course, no way to determine if a singular term could hold that kind of significance. Philosophically speaking, you are good at filling the girl with empty propositions. Promising you her house but taking the garden, she mistakes sore gums for sorghum, pulling out brute rhizomes by teeth, gums swelling with broth running the genus through her latticed exteriors, her musky body, flowering hand, her life an open casket for anyone but the dead to beatify. Let us say in meta-ethical terms what it might cost to grieve her. It only takes two people to save one, but the price is Occam's razor wrecking its brute logics on your shores forever. The price being you don't see her again or she gets claimed for hell and not even for the first time. Let us say what it costs for light. In the terms of language, something you couldn't put anything inside. The void and not the frame. Still, nobody can tell me I didn't build whole nations to love her, though incapable of telling her I love her how the brain flocks to the stratospheres of her being here by the way she consumes the sky with ordinary wings, how she thieves the world just by walking it. The second poem I'll read today doesn't have a title as yet, 
that takes after Diana Coy Nguyen. You don't talk to me like you used to. You don't talk. A sinking ship making communion with unspoken endings. You turn out grey and winged on windowsills. The trough undoing the tide of itself and your enclosing frame counting the seconds between this body and the next. To consider you, I hollow dreams, waking to words spoke unspoken. You turn out rubbed and unrendered, damn spot hiding where I cannot naphthalene, my limbs being too short, and the bees piling too high to obscure the memory of you, your means of bludgeoning the night with the drone of your pinions spinning out from themselves. Bees are not moths, though I live for each drowning, bayonets turning within me each accretion as I cannot turn you out of him. I cannot turn you out of him and so lift the boundary of your life as sleep from eyes without having slept, save your humming in the recesses of how and what next. To attenuate the deluge of bees, I bind macula to retina and watch them become unhalved of their holes. We become unhalved of our hole. The pinpricks drawing patterners, a botanic music. Yes, this hurts too. To ask who bears witness to the watcher as I watch you riddled of him. I watch him riddle your hands of their gentle offering, unanswering why won't you answer me. Telling in how I never told you, I never told you how much. I never told you how much I loved you until I was unloved by you. Whole and unopened, I grieve you unanswered and before your ending. I grieve you whole and unopened by me. The needle drop snagged where you unriddle yourself of your love for me. Unended, we end unloved. By endings we end, by loving endings. We end a sunken ship with hollows on windowsills. We end unloved with endings ended. We end... Thank you, Lou. You've been listening to Vignettes, the EWF podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please drop us a review, recommend us to your friends, and hit subscribe. Before we leave you to ponder moths and what they might provoke in you, just a reminder that applications to be in the 2021 Emerging Writers Festival are about to close. If you haven't already, please make sure you get your artist application in. In the meantime, join us next week for Luna, the final episode of season one. This podcast was produced by EWF program coordinator, Millie Bayliss. Our audio producer is John Chia, and our theme music was created by Two Care. You can find out more about the team behind this podcast and the artists featured in this episode on the EWF website. This podcast was created and edited on the lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge the First Nations peoples are the first storytellers of this land and that their sovereignty has never been ceded. We pay our respects to elders past and present and to the elders of the lands that this podcast reaches. It always was, always will be, Aboriginal land. <laughs>